You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 49, the verses 1 to 18, the verses 8 to 12 is the text for this morning's sermon. We are here in that point of time where Jacob is, he thinks, about to die, and he assembles his sons together in order that they may receive his final words, words of blessing, at least for some of them. Genesis 49, the word of God, as we read it in verse 1 and following, then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around So I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters. You will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders tumble backward. I look for your deliverance, O Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, In Article 29 of the Belgian Confession, mention is made of the marks of the true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then most of you know that there are three marks that are singled out, preaching, sacraments, and discipline. 
So if you want to know what the true church of Christ looks like, here is perhaps the best place to begin. And yet it has to be said that while there are three marks, these are not the only marks, there are more that can be added to the list. Look, for example, at the book of Acts, and you'll find them, especially in Acts chapter 2, towards the end, a devotion to apostolic teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to sharing, as well as to praise. And now as long as that particular list is, it too is not by any means what you might call exhaustive. No, this morning I would be prepared to go out on a limb and say that there is at least one more mark that should characterize the church of Jesus Christ. And what is that mark? Well, it is Advent. In other words, a true church always has to be an Advent church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that that a true church always needs to be looking forward to, anticipating, and preparing for the return of her Lord and her Savior. A church that no longer does that is not worthy of the name church, much less of the adjective true. A true church is an Advent church. God's people are to be an Advent people. And really, if you think of it, that's the way it has always been. The church throughout its history has always been an Advent church. In the days of the Old Testament, the believing remnants were always looking forward to the first coming of the Messiah. And in the days after the New Testament, this people has always been looking forward to his second coming. Why, you can say that today, perhaps more than ever before, the church of Jesus Christ is called on to be an Advent church. For what is this time in which we are living? It is the time between the Advents. The first coming has already passed. And the second coming is still to come. And beloved, that's also something to keep in mind as we busy ourselves in this Advent season of 2006. Today, in the traditional Christian calendar, this is the second Sunday of Advent. It's one of those four weeks prior to Christmas that the church has set aside to reflect on Jesus Christ and how he came into the world the first time. It's one of those weeks when we often turn to one of the pages of the Old Testament and read one or more of those famous prophecies that predict his coming. But not just his first coming. For almost all of these prophecies have also implications for his second coming. Yes, and to that end and in that context, let us turn to our text of this morning. I preached to you Judah's blessing, Advent in the tents of Jacob. And we'll consider together unlikely praise, secondly, unusual prosperity, and finally, unlimited power. 
Well, beloved, when you read the book of Genesis, you cannot fail to see that there are in this particular book at least three rather obvious Advent passages, passages that speak about the coming of the Savior. The first Advent passage is found, as you probably can guess, in Genesis 3.15, and the words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, when the Messiah comes, he will take care of the devil once and for all. The source of all evil in this world will be taken care of for good by the Messiah. Well, that is prophecy advent in Genesis number one. But then there's also a second passage in Genesis, Genesis 22, verse 18, where the Lord God promises Abraham, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. One day, Abraham's line will produce an heir. And that heir will be the source of blessing to all nations, tribes, and peoples. The Messiah will bring salvation and joy to peoples everywhere. And that is Advent in Genesis number 2, or Advent prophecy. And then, beloved, there is also a third passage in Genesis, and you find it here in Genesis 49, and especially in those words of verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom belongs to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Notice how it describes the coming Messiah as the one who will rule over the nations. And that too is an obvious reference to the coming of the great Messiah and what he will do. Only, beloved, if we are to stop for a moment and look at this third reference in some details, we need to look at its context. And you can see that the narrow context is this, that verse 10 is placed in the verses 8 to 12, Jacob's words to Judah. But, of course, there is a wider context yet, and that is chapter 49 as a whole, what it says and what goes before it as well. For there we have the patriarch Jacob speaking not just to Judah, but to all three, or to all of his sons, I should say, as well as to the sons of Joseph. Yes, Jacob is speaking here, and as you can sense already, Jacob is speaking prophetically. He is about to die. He says he is about to be gathered to his father's And before that happens, he wants to utter some final words. We call them words of blessing. Although you may wonder whether or not they're so blessed for everyone. But really, they are remarkable words. First, there are his words to the eldest son, Reuben. Jacob says that while he may be the firstborn... And while he may be eligible for a double share of the inheritance, he's not going to get it. And he's not going to get it because he's far too unstable and too untrustworthy. And besides that, he did a very 
detestable thing when he slept with one of his father's concubines. And second, there are Simeon and Levi who are lumped together, and they too face a rather frank assessment. Jacob calls them cruel, violent men. And no doubt he does that because of their slaughter of the Shechemites, which you find described in Genesis 34. So needless to say, neither Simeon or Levi fare too well. And next up is Judah. And what is Jacob going to say about Judah? After all, Judah too has, if you recall, a few strikes against him. You, you go back to Genesis 37 and that business of selling Joseph into slavery. Who is the one who convinced the other brothers that they should sell their pesky little upstart brother Joseph to the Ishmaelites who were traveling to Egypt? And in the next chapter, Genesis 38, who is the one who forgot about his promises to his daughter-in-law? And who was the one who slept with a prostitute and made her pregnant, all the while not realizing that it was his daughter-in-law who was after her rights? Why, it was Judah. Obviously, then, we think to ourselves, he too is going to feel the sharp edge of Jacob's tongue. He too is in for a verbal thrashing. So let's hear it. Jacob opens his mouth and he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. Now, beloved, that is not what we expect to hear, right? Where is Jacob's disapproval of Judah's past sins? Where is his condemnation? Why all of these compliments? Why all of this talk about future blessing? Why does he treat Judah so nicely? We're a bit perplexed. We think to ourselves, well, maybe the answer is to some extent because after all... Scripture does reveal that Judah learned something from his mistakes. After all, it was Judah who spoke to the viceroy of Egypt, not knowing that it was Joseph, and even offered to take the place of Benjamin. He had seen the misery of his father, Jacob. He had seen it once when Joseph disappeared. And he didn't want to see it again. And also it was Judah who, when confronted by his daughter-in-law, said, she is more righteous than I. And Scripture says he didn't sleep with her again. But then, beloved, even even if Judah has learned something, is he worthy of the blessings that Jacob heaps on him? Jacob predicts that his brothers will praise him, and in time they do precisely that. Judah takes his place in the front ranks of all the tribes of Israel. 
Jacob also refers to Judah becoming the most powerful of all of the tribes of Israel. And we know that too comes to pass. Why, Jacob even compares him to a lion's cub and to a lion that is to a royal beast and says, in other words, that royalty will flow in your veins. My, my, what compliments do not come Judah's way? And we're still led to ask why. Why all of this favor? Why all of these blessings? And then, beloved, it has to be said that really, in the end, we have no answer, no plausible answer anyway. And why? Well, because we always link blessings to behavior. You do good, you get good, right? Best behavior always pays dividends. That's what we instill in our children. Is that not one of life's rules? And yet what do you do when no one is truly deserving? You either stop dispensing blessings or or you dispense them purely out of grace. And beloved, the latter, that's what happens to Judah. He becomes an object of divine blessing purely and solely because of God's grace and mercy. What he gets has nothing to do with him and everything to do with his covenant God. It's because God is gracious that the promises keep on flowing. It's because God is mindful of the promises that he made to Adam and to Abraham and to all of mankind in Abraham that the tap of love and salvation is not turned off. And indeed, beloved, what applies to Judah here is if you think of it really something that applies to all of us. But who are we that we should be celebrating another Advent and looking forward to a second Advent? Who are we that we may claim God as our Father, His Son as our Savior, His Spirit as our Renewer? Who are we that our lives are every day filled with promises of adoption, salvation, and redemption? Beloved, the true celebrants of Advent and soon of Christmas are those who know themselves to be objects of grace. Like Judah, the only reason for our elevation lies with God. With God and His abundant and overflowing mercy. But then, beloved, if Judah is the object of unlikely praise, he's also, you will notice in the last two verses, he's the recipient of unusual prosperity. Consider those words of verses 11 and 12. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. 
His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Now that's, of course, symbolic language. I would also say it's language that we don't readily today in the 21st century relate to. It speaks of donkeys and colts. It speaks of washing your clothes in wine. And who in the world does that? It, it speaks of eyes and teeth extraordinaire. But you know, also here, persistence pays off for what Jacob is really saying to Judah is something like this. You will get to park your Lexus in a really spacious and well-equipped garage. Your clothes will be laundered for you and your wardrobe will come from Paris. Your looks will be stunning and your smile will blow people away. So what is this? Well, this is God through Jacob promising Judah the best of life. Affluence, food, clothing, looks, health. This is God dispensing material blessings. God being super generous. Now that's interesting, isn't it? But you may wonder, when did this come to pass? Well, I suppose you could think of the days of kings like David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah. We know that there were times in Israel's history, especially in Judah's history, of great peace and prosperity. And in addition, God's people throughout history have also been at times very richly blessed. Why look at us today? Are many of you not rich and prosperous? Can you not travel where you want, buy what you want, go where you want? Can we as well not, so to speak, wash our garments in wine? Only, of course, this doesn't apply to all of us. It's not a reality in the lives of all of God's children all of the time. Take a sweeping look over times past and you cannot help but see that God's people often struggle too. Why, even today, some of God's children are still struggling, especially in parts of the world that do not have and enjoy what we have and what we enjoy. For many of God's children, poverty is still a fact. Struggle is a reality. Wine is a luxury. And peace is nothing but a dream. And yet, and yet, Scripture says it will not always be so. For really, like so many of God's promises, this one too is made up of multiple fulfillments on the way to the great fulfillment. What God promises materially to Judah through Jacob is a preview of things to come for all of his children. For one day, what shall we inherit? Is it not a new heaven and a new earth? 
Is it not the best of the spiritual realm as well as the best of the material realm? Is it not a world filled with God and all the good things of God? Beloved, the future of God's children is filled with praise and enjoyment. We shall get to praise and enjoy our God. And we shall get to enjoy fully and truly and perfectly all the things He has made. The future, you see, is also filled with affluence. The affluence of God. But then, of course, you ask, how can that be? How is that possible? Well, for an answer, we turn to the third part of Jacob's words to Judah. And those are those words that you find in the middle of this particular text. And what kind of words are they? Well, they're words of power. Of mighty, unlimited, and overwhelming power. Notice, Jacob declares, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Again, to some extent, we're dealing with symbolic language. In addition, we're also dealing with a bit of a textual dispute in this verse 10. In particular, those words, until he comes to whom it belongs, have always been kind of controversial. If you check the footnote of the Niv as well, if you check some of the other translations, you will see that it says, until Shiloh comes. And that, of course, raises the question, what does that mean? Is that a reference to Shiloh, the place where the Ark of the Tabernacle rested for many years? Is that a reference to tribute being brought to Shiloh? Or is it perhaps a reference to a person? Beloved, I would say to you from the rest of the verse, without bothering to bring out all the kitchen sink of linguistics, it would seem that the last option is the best one. Here Jacob is saying to Judah that someone, someone is going to come out of his line, out of his loins, someone who will carry a scepter and a ruler's staff, someone to whom power belongs, and before whom all the nations will bow. In other words, here's the promise of a great and future ruler of one who will rule and reign supreme over all the nations of the earth. Yes, and who is that someone? None other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Jacob sees him coming through the line of Judah. And later Balaam, he sees him coming too when he says, a ruler will come up out of Jacob. And what about David? 
David sees him coming when he says in Psalm 2, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. And beloved, there is Micah who sees him coming too, and he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Truly, beloved, the Old Testament is filled with predictions about the coming of a great ruler, a ruler over the tribe of Judah, over the house of Israel, and over all the nations of the earth. When Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem, he is born as Judah's son and Judah's Lord. Later the Apostle John in Revelation calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's interesting, beloved, when Peter and John pray about, or after being imprisoned and threatened by Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, they they recite Psalm 2 about the nations raging and the peoples plotting together against the Lord's anointed. And the result, the earth shakes, and God confirms their words. Jesus really is the lion, the king, the son, Psalm 2, and the fulfillment of Genesis 49. And so what does all of that mean? I think it means that, beloved, you and I should not underestimate who Jesus Christ really is. Whenever people celebrate Advent and reflect on his first coming, there is this tendency, you know, to stop at Bethlehem, at a manger, at a baby, and to go no further. Many people never get past Bethlehem. And there is in our society and also in the Christian community sometimes this attempt to make Christmas into a cute time, a romantic time, even a warm and fuzzy time. How many people do not get especially romantic and sentimental at this time of year? Now, in a way, you can understand that. But you know, it's also a blunder. For while it's true that he comes into the world as a defenseless child, it's also true that he goes out of the world as an ascending king. And while it's true that he comes into the world as a lamb and all of his gentleness, there is a sense in which he is coming back as a lion and all of its ferocity. Jesus is Savior. But Jesus is also the judge. 
He saves and he condemns. You see, there are these two sides to our Lord and Messiah. Two sides that we must never overlook. He's lowly in spirit and gentle in heart, yes. But he's also mighty in power, opening scrolls and and breaking seals. Perhaps it's the Apostle John who says it best. John has this neat way of mixing together words of sacrifice and supremacy. When he says, under the guidance of the Spirit, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And praise. Beloved, what a Savior we have. Let us rejoice and be glad in Him. Let us serve and worship Him. Let us remember His first coming with deep thankfulness. And let us look forward to His second coming with great anticipation. I remind you the scepter is in His hand. And the ruler's staff is between his feet. And to him will truly and surely come the obedience of the nations. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.com dot org.